I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Formula for Success. I'm David Coulthard and with me, as always, is the man who has the gift of the gab, the granddad with the growl, the great Eddie Jordan. David, stop being nice to me. I hate it. I really dislike it. And anyway, just for those people out there, the Blarney Stone, I didn't kiss it. I swallowed it. Yeah, no, no, they have been looking for that for some time. <laughs> anyway, how are you, EJ? I'm in great shape, thank you. We're very lucky to be above ground, and let's keep rocking, man. Let's keep rocking instead. Now, it's British Grand Prix week. It's the biggest weekend in the F1 calendar, as far as I'm concerned. Monte Carlo, great Grand Prix. Melbourne, great Grand Prix. Montreal, all those races are great. But the British Grand Prix... But there is something special, isn't it? Is that it's, because we started there or what? What is it? Well, I think it's not just about us having, you know, been so connected to Silverstone through the years. You know, I used to go there as a kid, not for Formula One, but for karting back in the days with Martin Hines and, and the long circuit karting, you know, camping Terry there. Fullerton. Can you ever forget Terry? Well, Fullerton? I can. I, I can forget Terry. Um, <laughs> I raced against him in Formula Ford 1600. Thankfully, he wasn't as good in, in cars as he was in karts. Kart, he was extraordinary. Sublime. Absolutely fantastic. Virgin Senna said he was the most talented kart racer he'd ever come across. Yeah, he was incredibly uh, impressive. Now, as we mentioned at the end of uh, the show last week, both you and I will be there, of course, and we'll be doing a live podcast recording on the main stage at 6.30 p.m., right before the Black Eyed Peas. Now, I, I think that, um, you know, without putting ourselves down, when the Black Eyed Peas uh, ask who's the warm-up act and they go, it's formula for success with Eddie Jordan and David <laughs> Coulthard, they might go, what? <laughs> what is happening? Well, we shall warm the people up, hopefully. Uh, we'll have lots of different angles and a little few surprises, we hope. But David and I, thank you, David, because I think it's an excellent idea. It's something that I feel good about. You and I played with Texas, and I've had my own band there a couple of times. There's something special with that crowd at Silverstone. Let's hope it's a big sellout for us. Let's hope we can entertain the people. Let's hope this podcast is working, and we can encourage as many people to come at 6.30 to see you, DC, and me talk to a lot of different people about where Formula for Success is going. Yeah, well, this is the largest growing listenership of any podcast is that true? No, but I just thought I'd sort of go for my inner EJ. Are you, are you blagging? No, I am. I am. I just, I, I look across the table at you and I think, what would Eddie say at this point? Well, I'm saying to you, DC, try not get too high on your own supply. 
<laughs> okay, right. From one celebrity band, let's uh, let's move on to EJ's celebrity story. And please make this one be true. Who have you got for uh, us this week? It's very unlikely. Very unlikely. But this is a kind of a strange situation. All those many, many years ago. Um, I don't know, but I was getting away for a weekend. Uh, I had the boat in, in the south of France. I was getting on a plane and met uh, this uh, gorgeous young girl. Uh, and I thought she was completely somebody different. Anyway, I'm sure she will tell you a little bit more about that. But anyway, we turned up in Saint-Tropez. And I was a guest of Joe Lewis. And for those people out there, who is Joe Lewis? Joe Lewis, apart from... boxer. Ah, no, he could be, wasn't he? But he was. Joe Lewis owns Tottenham Hotspur and... and part of uh, the Bahamas as well. So Joe is a, a very generous, nice man, uh, committed to football, and he's done a lot for for Tottenham over the years. So we won't get into that particular thing. But on this particular boat that I was involved, I felt to myself, why am I on this boat? Because um, there was a lot of good people. Oh, uh, good many friends. of our listeners find themselves reflecting on that. <laughs> Thank you. You didn't need on... to remind them, though, David. You don't need to why remind them. Why are we them. on this boat? But on this boat was also a lot of really heavy um, hitters and uh, people who were great in sport. And people will remember the great Kerry Packer, what he did for cricket. And we can talk about what's happening in the ashes at the moment. But I think he was the inspiration of that. He put cricket back on a new level. He put in that Indian championship that they have and, and, and the ashes and what the greatness of Australian cricket. is. A lot of it's down to Kerry Packer. So anyway, Kerry was on board and uh, he wasn't very well at the time. And he was getting a guy called James to do most of his backgammon uh, games with Joe Lewis, who, you know, these were fairly serious um, gambling guys. But because they were all the same guys, I don't think much money actually passed hands. But can imagine we were on the boat. This is what happened at nighttime. Nice dinners, nice wines, ba ba ba. And I'm saying, what am I going to do? So I happened to say to Joe, Joe, um, you two are playing in Nice tomorrow night. Wouldn't that be pretty cool? And he said, Eddie, get 10 tickets. I said, you've got to be joking. I said, how can I possibly get 10 tickets? It's sold out a million times over. So I decided... I've told you a million times not to exaggerate. I went back and I said to Joe, Joe, listen, I've got a little idea. Paul McGuinness, who's the manager of the band, and Paul was very sharp. He made that great documentary called Riviera. I think you probably remember it. And that was his. So he, he, he's very talented in his own way, not just with YouTube, but lots of other avenues. And I, I rang Paul and I said, listen, Paul, what's it going to take for me to be able to blag? He said, I'm on the boat and here, I want to go to the gig. It's Joe Lewis and he's, and he set a figure. I'm not going to say what that figure was, but it was a good figure that was going to go to, Bono was doing this charity called, was it Red or One? One. And um, so was feeding the people in Africa and stuff. So it was a very serious contribution from a charitable point of view. So we got the 10 tickets. So Joe Lewis had these amazing three, well, I, it, it's a long time ago. I remember the cars were amazing and I thought, that, and I still think that they were Rolls Royces. So they were sitting there waiting for us to go uh, to be escorted into the backstage. Um, but then there was this girl that I'd met on the boat, on the plane. And she, they had a little boat beside us. And um, whilst these guys were gambling and stuff like that, I was on their boat, as you would do. And um, I suggested that, why doesn't she come with us? But we didn't have the 11th ticket. So I remember putting her in the boot of this Rolls Royce. So the next thing is... Oh, I'm pretty sure that's illegal. 
Uh, it probably is now, but it wasn't then. Okay. So anyway, we arrived in, and we didn't have to. We went. We were straight into green room. So I can only imagine that the fee had been paid over was quite substantial. Paul McGuinness arranged everything. The boot was opened. Out popped this girl, and she was lovely, lovely girl, and we've remained friends ever since. So who is this person? Well, uh, DC, you would absolutely love her. Her name is Emma McQuiston, who is better known now as Emma Weymouth, or even more better known as the Marchioness of Bath. You probably may not remember because you're probably not a, a Strictly Come Dancing viewer, but she was on it and she was amazing. She's also a show part uh, model and she is part of British Vogue magazine. Ooh. What an amazing girl. And I bumped into her recently and um, we're going to hear from her pretty much now. Hello, my name is Emma, and I have known Eddie and Marie and Zoe and Zach and Killer for pretty much what feels like my entire life. The first time I met Eddie, I don't know if he even remembers this, but I was at check-in at Heathrow with my mum, and Eddie came up to me and said, oh, you're great, I think you're great, you're so great. <laughs> and I was a bit confused and just said thank you, but it turns out he thought I was Samantha Mumba. But it wasn't her, it was me. I was about 17 and I had curly hair at the time. And we were on our way to Saint-Tropez for holiday and we had our boat next to Eddie's so we would see them all the time and bumped into each other all the time. And um, one night we went out to see Bono. You two had a concert in Nice and Eddie invited us. And funnily enough, I remembered this story because last week I was on the plane to Cannes with... Uh, Beverly Knight. I bumped into her, the amazingly talented, beautiful Beverly Knight. It was on my flight. I was on my way to Cannes as an ambassador for Chopard and I was working on my diary for British Vogue as a contributing editor and I saw her and she said she was on her way to see Eddie and the Prince and sing in Monaco during the Grand Prix. And I said, when you see Eddie, he will tell you this story of the night that we went to U2 and didn't have enough tickets and he snuck me into the concert and it will get more extravagant and more outrageous and more scandalous every time you hear the story. But just so you know, that's what he will say the minute he hears that you and I are friends. So I called Eddie and we had a great chat and it was so lovely to hear his voice and catch up. You know, it's so wonderful to have such old friends and also I'm so happy for his and all of the family's amazing success. So I remember sitting around the table when I was on the committee for Click Sergeant, which is the charity supporting children with leukemia and cancer. And we sat planning these Windsor race evenings and it makes me quite emotional to remember those nights. And we raised money and opened the home from home at UCLH. And I remember going to the opening and seeing my name on the wall on a plaque on this tree, this beautiful tree made of bronze, little medallions. And actually, I feel like I could cry. It's just wonderful that we did that. We did we did so much. I love them so much. All of you are great. All of you are legends. I'm so grateful to have you as friends. And I can't wait to see you again soon. Lots of love. You thought she was Samantha Mumba, you muppet. <laughs> listen, my eyesight was never part of my <laughs> best part of me. No, listen, they were so similar in my opinion. But if you've ever seen Samantha Mumba, also then go and see Emma, the two of them. Such gorgeous girls, really. Well, that is a wonderful, wonderful story. Um, and 
a wonderful weekend coming up ahead of us. Silverstone, look, we got to get into what makes this place so special. I've got to imagine the fact that you built your, your Formula One team right there beside Silverstone. I'm amazed that no one else has done that. You mean, think of McLarens and Williams and the other great British teams. Yeah, but you know, there was a lot of support for Jordan at the time. I don't know why, because... Um, even the bailiffs were nice to me. The shopkeepers <laughs> were nice. The publicans were nice to me. And when I went there uh, at the end of the 70s, um, there was a man called Jimmy Brown, and he was so helpful when I couldn't pay or didn't have enough money to pay the rent. They gave me places to 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 look after the car. It was a Formula Ford car, which James Hunt's baby brother called David. He was my first ever driver. And so it rolled on from there. But let me tell you, David... When you think about the great drivers, I'm talking about Marty Brundle, who you know particularly well, and so do I. Um, racing for Britain was a very important part of um, supporting him. And when he came to me with five grand to spend, five grand to do a Formula, Four, Formula 3 season, he got it from the BRDC uh, awards at the end. He, he won driver of the year, whatever it was then. So... Silverstone, in my opinion, are unsung heroes. They've done an amazing thing. Then you go on to Johnny Herbert and you go on to Martin Donnelly, you go on to uh, Damon Hill, and it just never stopped. They did amazing thing. Um, you know, I think there was also James Weaver and uh, all sorts of people. Racing for Britain, Silverstone, the BRDC, any bit of credit that they can get, they deserve because they are absolute pure and pure racers. Well, the BRDC, British Racing Drivers Club, are the custodians of Silverstone Racetrack, and long may that continue. You're the president, I'm now told. Uh, I, I am indeed. Um, before you try and blag any passes, <laughs> not a chance. It I have a new out. source. I have a new source. I have a new chairman well, there. it's sold out, and there'll be no one coming in on the boot. Okay, that trick has been done many years ago. None how many anymore. people have you uh, done exactly that? When you bring your new motor home, how many people do you have under the beds? No, no one at all. I am, an, you know, I believe in fair business. You're such a fibber. Not at all, not at all. Never snuck anyone in there. Right, let's talk about some highlight memories of uh, Silverstone. Uh, hopefully the weekend will be a highlight race. And and because you've been a little bit critical of Formula One, you say, no, it's a bit boring because, you know, we know after qualifying, Max is going to win. But is is that, it's not Max's fault or Red Bull's no, fault. No, I didn't the, say it was down, his fault. No, that's fair enough, you never said that. But it's down to the others to find performance. Absolutely. Silverstone is a track that really, a bit like Barcelona, it, it delivers on efficiency and performance. So it's very difficult to imagine anyone really challenging Red Bull this weekend. 100% um, their track record, so to speak, pardon the pun, but is immense. Um, Max is immense. I think it would be amazing if well, what Max previously said, if he couldn't win, that it would be Alonso. Can you imagine Alonso winning there uh, with the new Aston Martin set up a factory within you know, a, a, an iron-iron shot from the, the garage um, to, to their factory? I mean, it's, it's a... Uh, it would be an amazing story, and I'd like to see that. As much as I'd like to see Lewis win there, uh, or anyone else in that category, whether it be George, but I'd like to see a British win, and always nice, and a British place at Silverstone, because I think, you know, certain things in life, as you go through, you, you never forget. And I never forget the response 
of the crowd and the people willing on mantle to win that race, where the, the roar of the crowd was above the pitch of, and those were V10s and v they were very, very noisy engines. So for, to get those people um, to will on Mansell was something epic. And um, we miss those eras. I just like to see uh, somebody come, whether it be Lewis or whoever, but let's have a British winner. Well, Lewis has definitely had the crowd uh, singing and, and, and cheering and, you know, not to put myself in the same category. Uh, but, I hope not. But uh, I do remember um, 95, they, they changed, or was it 94? I remember it so well. Yeah. They, they changed uh, Stowe Corner. They made it a 90 right. And I remember overtaking Jean Alessi and the Ferrari down the inside. And because it was down to a slow speed corner, I could hear the crowd cheering over the noise of the cars. And it was the first time I'd ever experienced that inside a Grand Prix car, because obviously it's pretty noisy. But um, yeah, the, the, we've renamed at Silverstone, the start-finish straight is called Hamilton Straight. You, to have a driver's name that's current in Formula One, have part of the circuit named after him, I think is all testament to, to his, uh, his skills and his achievements. We've got a few good British drivers out there, haven't we, with Lando, with George, with Alex. Am I missing anyone? There's something I thought about recently. How lucky are we in Britain to have and have had over years a constant flow of great champions. You know, you watch on the other channel from time to time, uh, we see Jensen, world champion. We see Damon Hill, world champion. And it goes on from there, Nigel Mansell, and of course, James Hunt. And then we go into that era. And then you just, you mirror image, you place all of those successes over what they've done in Italy, for example. To think that Ascari in 1953 is the last time the Italians have had a world champion. It's scandalous, David. It just doesn't bear any sense. What's remarkable about that, actually, if we think of Britain as being the, the home of motor racing in terms of cars, Italy's got to be considered the, the home of, of karting. You know, there are many brilliant racetracks in Italy and brilliant Italian drivers in karting. But for some reason, it doesn't translate. No. And this is actually, as a, as a karting dad, and I don't want to take away from the businesses of, of people being active in karting, of course not, but a word of warning to karting parents that the trophy cabinet from karting is no guarantee of any success once you go to cars. Don't go all in with remortgaging the house to win a karting championship because although it may get you a, a car test, there are many examples of guys that have Terry won. Terry Follison. Won, yeah, won in karting and, and more recently who just don't deliver in cars. And you can't say, oh, the team wasn't right, the car wasn't right. You've got to be able to transition into cars and be quick straight away. And Otherwise, it ain't happening. And David, vice versa. How many times did the great Ayrton Senna go back to compete in the karting world championships because he, it always eluded him. He never was able to win it. And it, it really upset him. When he was finished his Formula One, he'd go back in the end of the season and to Italy usually and he would do the, the karting world championship. He never won it. So, EJ, I've got so many memories from, from Silverstone, right from having a big crash there in 95 during, during practice sessions. And as you remember, so not at a Grand Prix, this was just a, a, a test that Williams had. And coming out of the old club corner, lost control of the car, went straight into the barrier and I actually split my helmet on the side of the, the cockpit because back then we didn't have 
the, the, the Address you know the hand, the hand system where we didn't have the padded uh, system around the cockpit. And it turned out what had happened is uh, an actual uh, uh, one of the mechanics had forgotten to put the bolt um, tight on the steering column and the bolt had fallen out when I was going through the corner. So I'd, I'd gone straight into the barrier. And, um, you know, I remember looking at my watch, can I get knocked out? And when I, when I came round, the medical services were there and it was Silverstone said, and anyone who's been to Silverstone many times will know who exactly that gentleman was. And I, I looked at my watch and it was like 10.15 and testing started at 10 and uh, in those days. And I thought I'd been out testing for most of the morning, but it was actually the very first run of the day. And cause you know, banging your head will do funny things to you. Anyway, they, they get the car back and Frank gets a call to explain that there'd been an issue like that. And he, he came up to the track whilst they were working to rebuild the car because I wanted to go back out testing later that day. And uh, Frank came in to apologise uh, for, for the, the incident and, and the reason the incident happened. And then as an afterthought, he went, and I'm also here to tell you, I won't be taking up your option for next year. <laughs> so on one hand, an apology. On the other hand, you're, you're, you're not going to be driving for us next year. Which then he reversed later in the year um, because he, he, that's how I ended up going to the Contract Recognition Board in Geneva. And there was a little battle between Williams and McLaren as to who had my, my services from 96. But yeah. Now, is there any truth in the rumour that uh, back in the days when you were a Formula 3 team owner, you would block book the Silverstone track and then charge it out to other Formula 3 teams, adding a little Jordan margin, as, as one did. So you're already displaying... No, that's not true. That's it's not, not true. true. It wasn't a little margin. It was a large <laughs> margin. Of course I did. I would rent on the Friday afternoon. It was about the only time that you could get... Um, the track at Silverstone. So I would book it out in my name and um, Silverstone would give it to me and they say, uh, but it, it's general testing. The guys who come and say it's general testing. I said, mm, that's not true. It's um, exclusive. And if you want to test, uh, I'll let you test, but under my rules. And uh, this is the cost. So I would always have to be sure that I would have maybe 15, 20 cars, whether from a class B or class A or whatever it is. And one of the classic, classic moments, can you imagine the great Dick Bennett's from West Surrey Racing sending out Ayrton Senna against Brundle, uh, who was running in the Jordan car, and um, said, put the block out in front of him and said, no, sorry, I can't let you out. Of course, uh, Ayrton didn't quite understand <laughs> the fun of this. <laughs> I was keeled over and laughed at me. I mean, I couldn't stop myself. It was hilarious. Dick went absolutely apoplectic. I mean, every sinew, every vein that he had in his neck, he wanted to kill me. He wanted to strangle me. He wanted to beat me up. He sent the mechanics up to see. I said, Dick, it's very simple. Pay. You're just a tight ass. And that's exactly what happened. So he had to pay. So I loved it. Of course, I made a few quid. But then there was administration costs, administrative costs to have to pay for. So I think that was fair game. <sighs> EJ, you know, you are the original uh, ducker and diver, but you've done it with great success. And you all, you said something to me, which uh, I'll see if any of our listeners will disagree with this. You always said when you're doing a deal, you've got to leave something on the table for always. the other person. Otherwise, you're not, you're not actually doing business, you're robbing. It's a great philosophy, but that applies to every single person of any age group, whatever gender. When you're doing a deal, just be gracious enough 
to leave a little thank you. Always leave enough on the table. It's a very staunch. And where that comes back from, when we were all cattle dealers in Ireland, and the cattle men would always say, ah, Jesus, where's me bit of luck money? So you always had to have a bit of luck money. And that is the same, same philosophy as leaving something on the table for the next guy. Um, if I ever earn anything, then I will try and leave something on the table for the others. But, you know, I'm hand to mouth. I've never, I can't believe that will, I tell you what, pigs will fly when that happens. <laughs> Right, uh, pig flying moments. Any like moments at Silverstone where you just went, I can't believe how lucky I've just been. We know it happened to you at Spa with the Formula One win. We know it happened on other occasions in Formula One. But Silverstone, did, did, what was that moment where you went, this place has just seen my luck to change? Well, you've got it because he reminded me recently uh, at... at um, at Monaco, I bumped into our old pal, Ralph Schumacher, because uh, my son runs a motorhome, um, a, 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 a plane, and he was using um, some of uh, Ralph's wine, which is absolutely spectacular. Uh, he has a, a lovely vineyard. And, um, Do you know what it's called, Ralph's wine? It's uh, not called Schumacher, is it? It is or? called Schumacher. Really? Yes. And absolutely. then Yama Truly. So ex-drivers of yours seem to have gone into the wine business. And what about Jean? Jean Alessi? Yeah, exactly. What is that with you and your because drivers? Because you know something? You they're, drive them they're, to drink. They're lunatics because there's, no one has ever made any money out of wine because you usually consume it, but you don't wind up paying for it. But anyway, let's talk about the reality here. I was getting fed up with Ralph Schumacher. The car was not particularly clever. And... Um, he spun it in qualifying. And so he was now down 18, 19. Silverstone had got all the family there. We've got a party coming up and we had the gig and we had everything was happening. And I have this Schumacher at the back of the grid. And I said, listen, Ralph, I don't want to be rude. It's not normal that I would have this kind of team tactics talk. If you fail to get a point, you are fucking history. Just Motivational words by Mr. Eddie Jordan. No, but that's how you said That's what I said. So if we ever get Ralph on here, I want you to ask him the same question. I said, if you don't score a point, just pack your bags. Adios. You've had your chance. You're not good enough for me. I can't cope with this anymore. It rained. I thought, he spun. But he came back through the grid. He was immense. He finished sixth. He kept his seat and he, <laughs> he never, ever lets me forget it. Uh, and neither should he because it's, a, it's one of those rather, it's the only time I've ever really got upset with a driver. I got really irritated by him because I knew the talent that he had. And he was a real talent. I mean, th those two brothers, uh, I think they were on the front row of the grid. When the one was in a Williams and the other was in a Ferrari. They, they used to match up to each other. Um, Ralph Schumacher, what did he, he won six Grand Prix, seven Grand Prix. He's a great talent. Um, but I brought him... Um, I brought him... To uh, his knees and tears. Well, no, I brought him... I sent, I sent him to make some money. I sent him off to, to uh, Japan. And then when I realized that I think he could probably make it and there was some sponsorship coming from Germany, of course he got a drive at Jordan. But he then irritated me because I didn't think he could perform. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't living up to what he could do. Well, the, the, uh, the guy that probably could rival you in terms of doing a deal was uh, Willie Weber, who was the manager of Michael Schumacher, and he did the deal of the century when Toyota came into Formula One because Toyota signed Schumacher 
only you know, on a big number, on a big number, only to find out it was what they considered the wrong Schumacher. They got Ralph rather than Michael. Who's to say he was wrong? I mean, first of all, listeners, I must tell you, you know, when you've had a hundred, at least a hundred drivers, there are very few people who can come close or match Ralph Schumacher with integrity, as a personality, as a human being. We have had another person on a recent show, which is Gasho. It is amazing. The people that I had most of the aggravation with have turned out to be great, great friends and people that I admire because they've got real class. The other one I thought you were going to see was me. No, I wouldn't have you anywhere near a car. You were soft. Uh, you could have won a world championship, but you decided to take the money. And uh, let's move on. I think it's time to move on to listeners' questions. And, and very apt, uh, the, the, the first question here is from Callum in Farnborough. Oh. And he goes, hi, guys, I want to know if David was a team manager and EGA was your driver, how do you think that would have panned out? And uh, how would I have handled you? And could I have made you a world champion? Well, I never got to see you race, EJ. Um, but I've got to imagine that you were, you know, perfectly talented. There's, there's no bad talents in, in cars. You don't have to be nice to me. I was crap. Okay, okay. Well, look, did you ever win anything in cars? I was the European Formula Atlantic champion in 1907. Did I? Did you not know that? No, I, you couldn't have been that crap. You, you know, you've got to be Listen, good to win. But Atlantic at that stage was... Uh, I, I, I was driving Keki Rodsberg's car. He left to go to do Formula 2 or Formula 1. And then there were some really good guys. Alan Jones made Formula Atlantic really special. But look, don't talk about me as a driver. I wasn't good enough. Uh, and I learned very quickly that I'd be making a, a much better job of a team. And that's why I have that respect for Nicky Lauder, because it was he who came to me and said, Eddie, I've seen what you're able to do commercially, financially, and various other. You'd be far better suited. Why don't you think about running a team? So I'm always grateful to the great and late Nicky Lauder, because he was a legend. He, he was indeed. Did I ever tell you the story of him uh, giving me a, a schnapps before qualifying. Well, he should have given you... No, you didn't, but I'm sure... Shall I share that story with our listeners? Yes, I, It was a long time ago, and do not try this at home, kids. But um, it was 95 Italian Grand Prix, and I was on pole position because we used to have Friday qualifying and Saturday qualifying. So I'm already on pole. The 95 Williams was such a good car. Damon uh, in second... Actually, thinking about it now, Nicky was uh, affiliated with Ferrari back in those days, so he was obviously trying to, you know, scupper my chances. But he, he pulled me into Ben Eccleston's uh, motorhome, which was run by Carl Heinz Zimmerman, and with Gerhard Berger there, said oh, it's no. traditional to have a schnapps ahead of qualifying in uh, in Italy for whatever reason. I can't remember what reason they gave. So they, they come through with a tray from the back of the uh, the motorhome, as it was in those days and hand me uh, a little schnapps, and they, they do the same. And, you know, I don't know what flavor it was, but schnapps definitely tightens the, the palate. And, <laughs> um, and then uh, I go out and uh, take pole even further uh, out of reach from, from Damon, because, again, the, the Williams was such a dominant car. So it didn't slow me down, but, um, yeah, it potentially could have put me off track. So definitely... I wouldn't recommend anyone doing that, although it was a very small quantity. And I promise you. What is it with the Austrians? They just are insane. I mean, you mentioned a couple of names there. Uh, that Nicky Lauda, 
um, and ably and abetted by one Gerhard Berger. I mean, and then Karl Heinz and the girls in the motorhome. If you remember, they were they were always from the, the ski chalet that he had up in in uh, Lech. And um, they knew how to entertain. And that schnapps is the very reason when uh, Ayrton won the world championship, that famous time that he was sent down to the Jordan factory, the garage, uh, which Gerhard filled him up with schnapps and he just lost it and he punched Eddie Irvine, which happened to be the best publicity stunt that Eddie Irvine has ever had in his entire life. But that schnapps is responsible uh, for that. There's a dirty juice. Avoid it. Right, we've got another one here from Jamie B. and Hemel. And uh, he is saying, after listening to the Bertrand Gachot episode, the question is, have you regretted anything you've done throughout your career that has only maybe become obvious afterwards? So I probably regret telling the Schnapp story because that will be judged badly. But um, I, otherwise, no. But it I, happened, David. It, it happened. happened. It happened. It, happened. it couldn't so, happen now. No, no. And it, and it shouldn't happen And it now. shouldn't happen now. So... There you go. There's my regret. Have you got any regrets when you look back? You know, I actually felt the Bertrand um, episode, the, the, I felt like this was two men coming to peace with each other um, and, and a great episode for anyone who hasn't listened to it. Anything that you reflect on, you go, God, I wish I hadn't done that. Of course, there's dozens of things. You know, we're, none of us are. Well, perfect. give us your top ten then. But well, no, mind timing. <laughs> I think the mind you couldn't fit them all into the top ten. But look, the reality is that in life you make a decision and hopefully each time you make a decision, it's a conscious decision. It's something that you've thought about the fallout from it. You think about the upside, the downside. I'm not necessarily talking about business. I'm talking about life, human considerations, whether it's family or whether it's another person you're involved with or whatever. And I think if you make the very best decision that you can make at the time, you should never regret it. And so I don't have any real regrets. Um, you know, you, you talked about the Schumacher. Was I brutal with him? Yes, I was. But, you know, I was so uptight about what was going on. We were going to lose because that was the sixth or the halfway point. We had to get a point in the first half to qualify for money. So it was absolutely vital. And uh, if I remember, uh, Damon was a teammate and David's, Damon spun out, which I was hoping that that was going to be the big thing. But it didn't happen. And uh, Ralph Schumacher came to my assistance. And so therefore, I'll always be grateful to him. Um, do I regret speaking to him the way I did? Yeah, it wasn't very gentlemanly. I wouldn't speak to my children like that. Why should I speak to Ralph like that? Uh, and I offer an apology if he's listening. This is something that I regret. Okay, EJ, look, love the honesty. Um, but the main message there is make a decision with the information you have at the time and, and therefore no regrets. no regrets. Well, I think that is a lovely point for us to wrap this episode up. The rundown to the British Grand Prix, remember, you can come and join us live on the main stage on Saturday after qualifying. We will be there from around six uh, and we'll be recording FFS live and we'd love your input. Thank and, you, listeners. Uh, thank you. We will even have the anchor. What anchor? Uh, the anchor. It's our song, remember? Oh, <laughs> the anchor, of course. How could I forget? The anchor will be played across the great PA system that's going to 
be then having Black Eyed Peas pumped out through. But, and um, uh, thank you to the BRDC for thinking of us to put on the show. Absolutely. To, uh, to Stuart Pringle and the management team, thank you very much. And to our listeners, we thank you. <laughs>